The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even the two main groups who were supposedly on the same side, the internationally recognized government backed by Saudi and the coalition and the southern separatists backed by the UAE, their coincidence, their coalition, their cooperation is paper thin. It's very fragile. And this Riyadh agreement that they signed to keep them together under pressure from their sponsors in the Gulf, it could fall apart at any moment. So I think... It's much less now about making the priority a ceasefire. Of course, that's incredibly important. But no ceasefire is going to work unless there's a much more inclusive political process backing it up. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 21st, 2021. Yemen remains a mess. Many years of warfare have left it politically fractured, economically shattered, and a true humanitarian crisis of multiple dimensions. And yet, there are some small signs of hope, with the Biden administration increasing its engagement to achieve progress, and the United Nations resetting its efforts with a new special envoy to the country. To talk through it all, we brought into the Virtual Jungle studio two women who know Yemen and U.S. policy towards Yemen exceptionally well. Elizabeth Kendall, is a senior research fellow at Pembroke College of Oxford University, who has spent significant time on the ground, especially in eastern Yemen. And Alexandra Stark is a senior researcher at New America and author of the recent article on lawfare, Giving Diplomacy a Chance in Yemen. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 21st. Yemen on the Brink of Hope, with Elizabeth Kendall and Alexandra Stark. Elizabeth, let's start with a scene setter, if you will, for our listeners who have not followed the Yemeni conflict with the detail that you have. In the past five or six years, what are the broad contours of the conflict and how did we get to where we are, uh, let's say, at the beginning of the Biden administration a few months ago? Sure, David. Yes, well, of course, the roots of this war go back decades. There have been years of political, economic and religious marginalisation suffered by communities around Yemen. But the current cycle of war goes back really to September 2014, when the Houthis took over Yemen's capital, Sana'a. Now, the Houthis are above all a political grouping. They're 
commonly known now as rebels, uh, and their political grouping is underpinned by a religious ideology. And that religious aspect has become increasingly pronounced during the war. They're largely, although not exclusively, Zaydis, and that's a, a moderate branch of Shiism, which is different from the one in Iran. But, you know, as the war has wound on, they've become increasingly radical and supremacist and they've moved closer to Iran. And in 2015, these Houthis took over government and eventually the government personnel had to flee. The president went to Saudi Arabia and Saudi put together a coalition of nine Sunni states and began airstrikes. So it's quite important to recognise that the Saudi-led coalition was responding to a request from the Yemeni president who'd been overthrown, essentially. And it wasn't just launching a war on Yemen. Now, as the war progressed, perhaps in the first year, one could say that it, it made good progress pushing back the Houthis, but that was followed by years of stalemate. And the coalition led by Saudi Arabia started to unravel a little there was reputational damage. There'd been over 23,000 air raids to date, multiple strikes in each raid. It haven't always been well targeted. And, and perhaps there's been some headway by government forces, by coalition forces in the past few weeks. But generally, over the past couple of years, especially, the Houthis have had the advantage. They've been lobbying drones and missiles at Saudi Arabia since the war began, but many, many in the past two years. And just to give you a sense for, of where things are by the time you know Biden came in to office in the United States, last year there were just over 30 active war fronts in Yemen, and this year that's almost 50. So it's going in the wrong direction. And the major coalition partners the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia also finding it quite difficult to control their respective domestic forces. So things are starting to unravel. They're getting worse, not better. I do want to come back to that Saudi-Emirati dynamic a bit later. But first, uh, Elizabeth, let me go back to something you mentioned in there quite casually, which in fact is a, is a major issue and has been for US policymakers in particular for some time. The Houthis are aligned with Iran. The Houthis are supported by Iran, but are the Houthis controlled by Iran and are the Houthis puppets for Iran? Talk through that dynamic just a bit. That's an excellent question, David. Actually, the Houthis can't really be considered a direct proxy of Iran. The Houthis are aligned with Iran and they now at least at this stage in the war, they are relying very heavily on Iran to replenish them with military advisors and with military hardware. Certainly the increase that we've seen in the sophistication of their weapons and the kinds of drones and ballistic missiles that they've been launching at Saudi Arabia are attributable now to Iran and Iranian intervention. So although Iran doesn't directly command and control the Houthis, it would be extremely useful if some agreement could be reached, perhaps separately with Iran, to stop supplying and assisting them. So Iran comes into this perhaps more broadly in terms of the wider international talks that are being held with Iran. 
it might be useful if built into those talks could be some mechanism for reducing Iran's intervention in Yemen. Thank you. That is helpful. Alex, let's turn to the U.S. side of the conflict, again, up through the Trump administration. Uh, What are the broad contours of United States impressions of the conflict, activity in the conflict, interactions with the direct parties to the conflict, as well as the brokers like Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis? Where has U.S. policy been and and what is that that range of policy activity that we've seen up until January of this year? Yeah, so like Elizabeth said, the Saudi-led coalition's intervention began in March 2015 at the invitation of the internationally recognized government of Yemen, which had been pushed out by the Houthis. And at the time, Obama administration officials say now that they were more focused on other regional issues, things like the Iran deal negotiations, which were ongoing, and on maintaining a good relationship with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who led the coalition intervention, and who, of course, are important U.S. security partners, than they were about what was happening in Yemen per se. So the U.S. had been involved fairly extensively in counterterrorism operations in the past in Yemen. It's not as though the U.S. hadn't been involved at all. But the engagement with this conflict began with that Saudi-led coalition intervention that U.S. officials decided to provide support to. And part of the rationale was that they thought they could help the coalition, particularly in terms of, of their airstrikes, but also in terms of their operations more generally, to have more precision, to help them to avoid civilian casualties, to boost their capabilities, that kind of thing. So since the intervention started in 2015, the coalition's air campaign has has been really notable for having a high number of civilian casualties and, and for these notorious incidents where they have hit civilian targets, including a large funeral, a school bus full of children, for example, really you know, frankly, awful strikes that the coalition didn't really have a good explanation for why that had happened. And so in the final year of the Obama administration in 2016, we do know now that U.S. officials were increasingly worried about the strikes from an ethical perspective, of course, but also because they worried that U.S. officials could even be implicated in war crimes. And so they had tried to work with the coalition to bring down civilian casualties that didn't really seem to be working. And so they instead sort of pivoted to a plan of putting more pressure on the the coalition publicly, especially after that large uh, funeral airstrike. And that included putting a hold on a planned arms sale of precision guided munitions. But that kind of went out the window when the Trump administration came into office. And essentially, Trump had a much warmer relationship with the leadership of Saudi Arabia and the UAE was more concerned about that relationship and about U.S. arms sales than it was about Yemen. And so many would say they essentially gave a green light to the coalition to continue. So at the same time, though, the Trump administration did come under increasing pressure from the U.S. public as well as uh, members of Congress and activists specifically. And that really intensified after the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in late 2018. And so right after that, the U.S. did officially end aerial refueling for the coalition. 
in the summer of 2019, the UAE started to draw down most of its own forces in Yemen, although it is still involved through its proxies and, and through its relationships with groups on the ground. And I think Saudi Arabia also kind of started to see the war as this quagmire that was costly and, and kind of increasingly unwinnable. Thank you. Let's update that. We, we do have a new administration in, and we've seen something that we haven't seen much in U.S. history, which is an incoming president prominently talking about Yemen and making a, a speech that had helping to resolve the conflict in Yemen and change the dynamics there a central part of it. Um, talk a little bit about the emerging Biden policy towards Yemen and any successes up till now. We'll, we'll talk in a few minutes about ways to position for the future, but any successes or failures up till now just in these first few months of the administration? So I think it's actually important to understand all of that background that I just gave in order to understand what the Biden administration has done, because when President Biden made the announcement at his first foreign policy related speech as president in February, like you mentioned, that really prominently featured Yemen, which was kind of surprising and exciting. That really marked, I would say, a fairly significant shift in the U.S. approach. And I think maybe some of that has been forgotten now more than five months or so later. But the way that both previous administrations had engaged is different than what the Biden administration is doing. So Biden said that the United States would end U.S. military support for the coalition and specifically offensive military support, which is important because the United States will still engage in what the administration deems to be defensive support in support of Saudi Arabia and defending itself against uh, Houthi attacks, for example. It has ended some arms sales, but has uh, let some others go through, for example. It hasn't completely cut off support. And at the same time, what I think is even more important in a way is that the Biden administration has really doubled down on and engaged in diplomacy that's explicitly aimed at trying to end the conflict. So the UN-led process, the peace process, had been ongoing. Frankly, it was kind of dead in the water by the time that President Biden came into office. That's no shade to the UN team. I, I, they worked really hard and did their best, but they had almost been locked out of the process at that point. And I think the appointment of Special Envoy Timothy Lenderking, who has been leading U.S. diplomacy around this, has really helped to revitalize negotiations. Now, nothing that's happened since then has been a major breakthrough. There haven't been these like splashy banner headline moments, certainly. But I would argue that the diplomatic approach has shifted some things in a positive way. And of course, there are other things that you can look at to criticize or to say that they should do more of. But they have, first of all, like I said, reinvigorated the UN-led peace process. They have changed the incentives for some of the international actors, and especially actors that the United States has a closer relationship with, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, frankly, sure. to try to get them to come to the table and negotiate in good faith. I'd like to break down some of those factors in a few minutes. But first, Elizabeth, give us the kind of on the ground situation there from what Alex has talked about in terms of U.S. policy. Obviously, there have been developments in the last few months on the ground in Yemen itself with the Houthis' rejection of ceasefire proposals, continued military activity. So if you can, respond to what Alex said. And uh, in that process, 
get us up to date on the situation on the ground itself? Sure, David. Yes, I agree with with what Alex has said. Actually, it's very easy to blame the Biden administration for a deteriorating situation on the ground. But in fact, this is a deteriorating situation that Biden inherited. He's come in for a lot of criticism for having lifted, for example, Trump's designation of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. And, you know, on the surface, it, it looks like that may have inadvertently empowered the Houthis because they have subsequently escalated their hostilities even further. But, you know, in fact, the Houthis have been escalating their offensives on the ground in Yemen's center and north for months, many months before Biden entered office. And actually, Biden's work to revoke the terror designation probably did prevent a mass starvation. Uh, He did it on humanitarian grounds. And, you know, he's taken other steps which do seem sensible. He's sanctioned individual Houthi leaders, not the whole movement. And of course, he's withdrawn support for offensive operations, not for defensive operations. And so I think when we consider that the war is now in its seventh year and Biden has been in office about six months. I agree with Alex that it's it's worth waiting around a bit. What we need to be really careful of is rushing to some kind of ceasefire agreement. It's not going to be solved quickly. And there are so many actors in this war that need to be brought in. I think that the US policy of supporting and trying to beef up the UN position is a good one. And I think that bringing in Oman and raising the voice of Oman is also a very positive step because Oman holds a lot of sway on the ground in Yemen, a lot of, shall we say, credibility. It's considered a more neutral actor and it's got a great history of trying to carefully mediate uh, without trying to take the glory. So I think that steps are being laid might just get us towards a more politically suitable negotiating scenario without the mad rush. But we shouldn't be holding our breath. If you could talk through that Gulf dynamic a bit more, because the Saudis and the Emiratis were largely working, if not together, at least with similar purpose for some time. But there have been some serious cracks in that cooperation and the Emiratis largely pulling out of direct intervention. But the Omanis stepping in not long after the new sultan came into power, do you think that the Omani role really is him, if not flexing his muscles on the regional stage, at least trying to establish his credentials as playing the role that Qaboos often did before him to be the quiet mediator to try to resolve issues in the region before they blow up? I think Oman wants to resolve the Yemen crisis because it shares a 300-kilometre border with Yemen. So it wants to prevent any overspill and just for humanitarian reasons. Now, one one mustn't forget that Sultan Haitham of Oman's predecessor, Sultan Qaboos, had been very sick for many years. So it was difficult perhaps, for it to play a a really central role. 
And and when Sultan Haitham came in, you know, there were a few personnel changes inside Oman and clearly a strong energy behind wanting to resolve the Yemen crisis. And perhaps also a fear of what regional actors might make out of Yemen. You've raised a very important point in that the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia appear, well, and they are, on the same side. They're part of the same coalition fighting the Houthis. But while they have the same mutual enemy, the Iran-backed Houthis, that does not mean that they ultimately had the same goals inside Yemen. And this has become more and more obvious as the war has worn on. Now that Saudi Arabia is largely left running a pretty empty coalition on its own, and the United Arab Emirates has pulled out troops, it's become much more of a battle between their proxies on the ground. And you'll notice that in all of the United Nations briefings this year so far, the United Arab Emirates is not called out for being helpful in getting towards peace, whereas Oman is always called out for being helpful. Saudi Arabia is called out for being helpful. And I think the perception now is that actually the United Arab Emirates might be supporting the separatists in a way that will ultimately advance its own regional security and commercial goals, rather than putting Yemen's peace first. Sure. I I found it fascinating that recently media observers have noticed that the semi-official newspapers in Saudi Arabia are starting to see some commentary from writers which look like criticisms of the UAE and its position in Yemen, possibly opening up those fissures a bit more. Alex, back to you for a moment. You mentioned that Tim Linderking was going to be working as the special envoy on Yemen. I'm wondering if you could talk just a bit about what he brings to the table and whether there's a reasonable prospect that any of the parties involved are going to I don't know, respond more positively to his role and listen to him more than others who have preceded him. Yeah, Tim Lenderking had been a civil servant, and so he has a lot of really extensive um, experience in the region, has worked on the Yemen issue before. And so he brings all of that to the table, which I think is really useful. I think even more important, though, is that the Biden administration has clearly signaled that it's behind these diplomatic negotiations and that the United States is willing to kind of put some pressure on the various parties and stakeholders to try to reach an agreement. So I think it's really important to to say that diplomacy in in these kinds of civil wars or, or internationalized civil wars, if you prefer, is really difficult. The situation on the ground in Yemen, as Elizabeth has already outlined, is so complicated. It has only become more so since the fighting started. We often talk about it as a two-sided conflict that's between the internationally recognized government of Yemen and the Houthis. And that's a little bit true. That's not untrue, but there are so many other factions on the ground, even factions that are nominally aligned with the Yemeni government. And that, of course, goes back in part to the question of potential tensions between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, because the UAE has supported Southern, the STC, so Southern separatist groups, 
that are, again, technically on the side of the government, but also want to secede at some point mm-hmm. and have even fought with the government in, in the past, which is why the Riyadh agreement was needed. Right. So all that is to say, and and I could go on and on about how complicated the situation is and the, you know, the different dilemmas that negotiators really face. And just to say there's there's really no low-hanging fruit here. And so any steps forward in diplomacy and negotiations are probably not going to be major breakthroughs, frankly. I, I, I would love it if they were, but I don't expect to see that. I expect to see more of these sort of smaller steps towards hopefully someday a more comprehensive negotiation process and a comprehensive peace. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. 
And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Elizabeth, let me ask you to reflect on the message there from, from Alex. And I'll use in particular the words of Peter Salisbury at the Crisis Group, who said that, in fact, Yemen has fractured into a series of almost mini-states. and is the situation on the ground in Yemen not only more complicated than two sides in a civil war, not only more complicated than multiple actors with territory, but but is it so complicated that it would be almost impossible to see an agreement that would stop the fighting across the entire country and allow for more efficient humanitarian delivery and even some kind of political reconciliation? I think... Everything you've said there is true. It's unbelievably complicated, just as Alex said. And the quote you've just given from Peter Salisbury, yes, absolutely, things are fragmenting. And I think that on a very macro level, we could see these three main groups in Yemen. We can see the Houthis backed by Iran and based in Sana'a. We can see the internationally recognized government mostly, frankly, still based in Riyadh and backed by Saudi. And then we can see the southern separatists that Alex mentioned, the Southern Transitional Council, based in Aden and backed by the UAE. But within each of those three groups, there are tons of smaller tribal militias and other kinds of of, uh, non-state actors who are perhaps just under an umbrella for now. So we, we can easily start to see this 
fragment. And even the two main groups who are supposedly on the same side, the internationally recognized government backed by Saudi and the coalition and the southern separatists backed by the UAE, their coincidence, their coalition, their cooperation is paper thin. It's very fragile. And this Riyadh agreement that they signed to keep them together under pressure from their sponsors in the Gulf, they signed that in 2019. It could fall apart at any moment. So I think it's much less now about making the priority a ceasefire. Of course, that's incredibly important. But no ceasefire is going to work unless there's a much more inclusive political process backing it up. So in a sense, that latter has to come first. And then the ceasefire might stand a chance. So there are many obstacles in the way. I, I mean, I could, I could run you through them, but I think Alex has already done quite a good job of that. One new factor here is the appointment of a new UN special envoy toward Yemen. Martin Griffiths had been there for some time and had put forward Herculean efforts, but not much to show for it on the ground. Reports are, as we're recording this, that the nearly 100 people at the UN working in the special envoy's office uh, will be working with the seasoned Swedish diplomat, someone who has, I believe, been in Yemen as the EU ambassador for several years, uh, Hans Grundberg. And I'm wondering, Alex and then Elizabeth, if both of you could comment on what you think the introduction of a new envoy on the UN side of things, and and someone who is well-respected can bring to the table at this time. I think the appointment of a new UN special envoy will help to breathe more life, hopefully, into these negotiations and and provides an opportunity for a kind of refresh on um, how negotiations have been going. One thing to note about the UN-led process is that it has been very high level and has focused largely on essentially meetings in in regional capitals and dealing with with regional state actors and the main non-state actors in Yemen, like the Houthis. But it has also been criticized for not being as inclusive as it could be and for neglecting kind of large swaths of, of Yemeni society, of civil society actors, of even other armed groups that, as Elizabeth said, could act as spoilers in the case of those armed groups to any agreement that is just reached between you know, the Yemeni government and the Houthis, for example. There are also local civil society actors in Yemen working on the ground who have engaged in their own sort of peace processes that have made really important strides. And it's important to for the, the new UN special envoy, whoever they may be, I think, to engage in those more localized efforts and to try to make the peace process much more inclusive. So if I'm being optimistic, hopefully the appointment of a new special envoy will get an opportunity for that. Elizabeth, what do you think about the new UN special envoy and his chances to make some real progress? Well, good luck to him. He's inheriting an immensely (laughs) challenging situation. I think it's probably helpful that we now have a Swede in place rather than a Brit. I think the UK is widely seen as perhaps carrying a bit too much baggage to mediate. We, of course, have a a strong colonial history in Yemen, and and we are a major arms exporter to one side of the conflict, to Saudi Arabia and UAE. 
Uh, Sweden also sells arms, but I, I think the UK is in a different league. We're talking over $9 billion of agreed arms licenses just since the beginning of the war. So I think we can learn something from the previous envoy's final Yemen briefing. He, in mid-June, gave a very long list of what's wrong. And, you know, after three years on the job, he, he's got a good idea of what's wrong. And I think one of his most chilling reflections was when he said what's possible in terms of conflict resolution years ago, what was possible then is not possible today. So that just gives you a sense for what the new envoy faces. And I think what Alex said is absolutely spot on top of the list for the new UN envoy is instituting a robust political process that has to be truly pluralistic and inclusive. And, you know, that might even mean reinterpreting, rethinking that 2015 UN resolution 2216 that says that the Houthis have to withdraw from the lands that they've taken and put down all their arms and return to their pulverized northern strongholds. You know, this really isn't practical and could perhaps be reinterpreted differently, not in a way that rewards the Houthis, who've done despicable acts, but in a way that tries to get at peace. There are so many challenges. There's zero trust between the sides. There's a powerful war economy that's booming and disincentivizes people from making peace. And wars become a way of life. You know, positions are entrenched. Camps are polarized. It's hard to get any leverage over the Houthis. But consultations, as they are at the moment, are not inclusive enough. And, and, and the war's fragmenting. So I really do think there's a lot of hope pinned on this new UN envoy. It's funny you should use the word hope because you, you just sounded very depressing about it. And I've got to admit, from 25 years ago, when I went to Yemen for dissertation research all the way to now, rays of hope for Yemen have been all too few and far between. But Alex, in Lawfare recently, you wrote that the Biden administration's diplomatic efforts have reinvigorated the UN-led negotiations and changed the incentives of many of these key regional players in what you call fruitful ways. I'm wondering if you can expand a bit on that and tell us, to the extent that you are cautiously optimistic, why we should be feeling, if not a ray of hope, at least a, a little glimmer of hope in the distance that's coming now. Yeah, I want to be clear that cautiously optimistic is exactly the right term to use because as as we've already alluded to, there are so many challenges that negotiators face now in Yemen that getting to a sustainable peace and even a peace process is going to be really challenging. But I do see some signs for hope. Maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I do think that the appointment of, of Timothy Lender King, the U.S. Special Envoy, and his engagement has borne some fruit. So we have seen, for example, the Saudi Arabia and Iran talking to each other directly, reportedly about Yemen, primarily. We have seen the Omanis take an important role in leading negotiations, as Elizabeth described. Um, we've seen some other international actors in Europe, for example, get sort of behind the peace process in a more robust way. I think because the United States has sent the signal that it is serious 
now about trying to resolve the conflict. Of course, the United States isn't the most important actor here by far. The United States can't impose a peace, of course, nor can the international community. At the end of the day, Yemenis are going to have to find a way to to end the fighting and, and find a a new political system themselves, but the United States and other international actors can kind of push and pull and change incentives, can encourage their friends to come to the negotiating table and to really engage in these negotiations in good faith, can encourage them to make concessions, that kind of thing. And so I think that really robust engagement is important and at least a sign that things could move in the right direction. Elizabeth, is there good faith to build on or have the last few years so polarized the the different communities in Yemen that there just isn't enough good faith for a reasonable peace effort to be made? Wow, that's a really leading question. Is there enough good faith? I think, of course, Yemenis on the ground are desperate for peace. And we just need to work with that. I think it's a case of really understanding much better the local dynamics amongst all the myriad actors on the ground in Yemen. I know that sounds difficult and it sounds long wearing and it's a bit of a hard road. But without that, we're really not going to get anywhere just talking to the same elites around international negotiating tables. So in terms of hope, I would focus very much on something that Alex raised and that is the civil society initiatives. Mm -hmm. Building up civil society initiatives, focusing on these, is so important on ensuring that Yemenis have a future to invest in, giving them some hope, giving them some aspiration, giving them something to look forward to. And, you know, as part of that, I think trying to empower grassroots organisations on the ground, empower their voices, and actually include far more women's voices and, of course, youth voices, not just as tick box exercises, but, you know, genuinely including them. Perhaps one thing that COVID has shown us is the power of mass consultation. Uh, And and that won't be perfect, but it's certainly an improvement. And starting to rebuild communities now, not delaying. That way, I think that Yemenis will have something to defend something to aspire to. Can you give an example or two of a truly grassroots civil society effort from Yemenis that has had some success in the last few years? Well, I I could give you an example from some work that, that I support in the east of Yemen, which is tiny. It's it's really very grassroots, but but you know it could be rolled out. It, it has been successful. It's it's a program for peace building amongst children that aims at trying to get them to think about problems from other people's perspectives. I guess what we might call empathy. But it's you know if you've got a problem, how do you solve it by looking at it with another tribal? point of view rather than just picking up your gun and solving it and we're using a lot of local what we call facilitators half of them women and getting them into 26 schools or even just tents where locals can gather and getting kids to do really fun 
activities that are incredibly interactive and they absolutely love it. Everyone's involved and they are starting to think about taking a bit more responsibility about, hey, listen, if I want to get to this place, what are the steps I need to do to get there? How can I Mm-hmm. help how can i help to build peace and how can i help to break the cycle of violence so i mean taking little initiatives like that i think would go an incredibly long way one of the problems is that finding these initiatives is difficult because you know once you've got a a, a website an international proposal in with one of the big aid agencies english speakers political contacts all the right certificates the chances are you're way up the corruption scale. So, you know, we we need to make better contacts on the ground through, well, I I have a committee called a coordination committee in the east of Yemen, which tries to seek these things out and then try to build them up. So in short, working with existing local grassroots initiatives rather than trying to parachute in brilliant ideas from abroad. Alex, let's wrap this up with your take on that initiative in, in a larger sense, let's paint a positive picture, which is some of those grassroots efforts, let's say, do take hold. They, they do expand. They do share best practices across the country. Maybe the U.S. representative or the U.N. special envoy does reach some kind of a understanding, if not a breakthrough, with several of the parties. Maybe they just get tired of fighting for increasingly small amounts of, of territory Let's look forward six months or a year. What do you think is the reasonable best case scenario we could be seeing in Yemen? Your question about um, civil society efforts also reminded me of the Yemen feminist peace convening, which was held just Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, which brought together Yemeni civil society leaders and members of the international community. And they're working on building a roadmap towards peace, which incorporates elements not just a ceasefire, which of course is important, but also things like um, longer term disarmament, transitional justice, that kind of thing. So I think that's another great example of kind of a civil society led effort that could be incorporated into these higher level UN led peace processes. Mm -hmm. But your question was about the best case scenario. So it's funny, I'm most in a way, both pessimistic and optimistic at the same time. I don't expect to see a major breakthrough within six months or even a year. I think, in fact, if we did see something that looked like a major breakthrough, it might we might even be a bit suspicious of that because, as Elizabeth has articulated so clearly, the situation on the ground is so complicated that it's not going. There isn't going to be one kind of ceasefire agreement, say between the Saudis and the Houthis, that ends the fighting and, and, you know, everything is great and we're on to peace negotiations. I think any diplomatic progress forward will be, frankly, slow moving and kind of painstaking and messy and won't look hugely optimistic necessarily from, from the outside. But the important thing, again, like Elizabeth said, is actually not to rush this process forward. I think one of the worst things that could happen, or a relatively bad thing that could happen anyway, there a number of bad scenarios you can imagine, but would be for, you know, the international community to kind of slap together a paper agreement between the Houthis and and maybe the Yemeni government and say, okay, we solved it. That's, it's great. The, the conflict is over and kind of wash its hands. And then you would have all of these factions who are still fighting on the ground. You would still have the same dire humanitarian situation, same high levels of poverty, inflation, 
all, all of the crises that we have now, but with less international attention. I think that would be a bad outcome. So what I would hope for in terms of a better case scenario is continued engagement from the international community in diplomacy and in these negotiations, and that they take a more inclusive look at trying to bring in these civil society actors and women in particular into negotiations so that there can be a a long-term process and a political transition. We're going to pause there. And I say pause because something tells me that we will be continuing this conversation about many of these same dynamics many months and perhaps years from now. Elizabeth and Alex, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please rate the podcast, share the podcast, and communicate about the podcast on your social media of choice. Remember, you can get ad-free versions of this podcast by becoming a supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Patya Howell. Hamza Shatu is our audio engineer. Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.